Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Acts chapter 26, where we will be this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, page 935. we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been seeing the birth of Christ's church, the early church, what they held dear, what it was that drove them and motivated them and helped them to persevere. We've seen the obstacles that they've met along the way. And what I think we see throughout the whole book is we see this picture of spirit-empowered witnesses. And that's not just something that should be unique to the book of Acts, not something that just should remain there in the first century, but I think the reason why God has given us the book of Acts is to say, look at what I'm doing what I'm doing in the church. Look at, how, look at how Christ is building His church. Look at what He's provided for His church. Look at how He sustains them. It says, be a spirit-empowered witness. Are you a spirit-empowered witness? It means you have to first have the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. To be empowered. Our world, our culture, talks a lot about empowerment, what it means to be empowered. It seems like everybody would like to be empowered. But the only way to really be empowered is to have the Spirit, the the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of you. (laughs) Amazing. And working in you and changing you and shaping you and fashioning you more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then pushing you out into the world and saying, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Fascinating, isn't it? You realize that's why why Paul calls the church the temple because that's where the spirit of God resides. He resides in us as God's people. So with that in mind, let's read together Acts 26 this morning. If you would stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's Word as we read, I will be reading the whole chapter. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, 
that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and, the, and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things that I am speaking, and to him I am speaking boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How far are we from losing the gospel message in the church? 
how dangerously close are we to the edge of forsaking the Christian message? And would that ever be a concern for the church? Would the prospect of losing or distorting or confusing or even denying the gospel be a flashing warning light in our minds that would make us sit up and take notice? Or would we continue to throw the baby out with the bathwater? D.A. Carson relates something a colleague of his said to him at one time who came from a Mennonite background, recognizing that it is a simplistic caricature but still useful. This is what his colleague said. One generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. One missionary and author, Max Stiles, relates the same fear when he points out one generation accepts the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the next generation confuses the gospel, and the next generation loses the gospel. What's the warning there in those statements? It only takes one generation to start to slip. It only takes one generation for the church to die. And if any generation has started to go down one of those roads, it must lead the church to recognize the problem and promote gospel recovery. This is why we can't get over the gospel. We can never and must never get past the gospel. We must never think that somehow we are beyond the gospel or that we need something more than the gospel. For the true Christian, you can never have too much gospel. That's like saying you can have too much of God's grace or too much of God's love or too much of God's mercy. That's ridiculous. No one who knows God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, would ever say such thing. Rather, they would say, I can't get enough of, of it. So we can never say we have too much gospel precisely because we can never say we have too much Christ. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Thesis 62 says this, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel and the glory and grace of the glory and grace of God. Is this what we say our treasure is? And if it is our treasure, what are you willing to risk for the gospel? What will be the resolve of your life if the gospel is really your treasure? Let's be clear. The gospel message is the Christian message, and this is the message that our world desperately needs today. We cannot and must not assume that people know it. We cannot assume that people have not been confused about the gospel message. We cannot believe that Nothing has been lost in translation when it comes to the gospel. Our desire is for others to know it and for them to believe it. But the only way that they are going to know what it really is and the only way that they are ever going to believe in the gospel message is if they hear it. How will then they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing 
and hearing through, can you finish it? The word of Christ. How will they call on him, upon Christ, of whom they've never heard? Answer is, they won't. (laughs) To believe, they must hear. And so we are those who must seek to give the gospel hearings. Let people hear it. People need to hear, just as we depend upon the Lord, to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. So we trust that the Lord will open the ears of those who are spiritually deaf and hear and understand and believe and accept and receive the gospel. But not all will accept it. Not everyone will receive it. But let that not be due to our lack of clearly and consistently proclaiming it for people to hear. No gospel message, no faith. Or perhaps even worse, a pseudo-gospel message leading to faux, fake, superficial faith. Paul, in his fourth defense here in Acts 26, stands before the Roman governor Festus and Jewish leader Herod Agrippa II. They're trying to determine what to write the Roman emperor Nero concerning Paul's charges. Paul is about to be sent to Rome. He's appealed for his trial to go before the emperor And Paul does what he so often has done. He gives a defense. He gives a gospel hearing. He proclaims the gospel. And you know what his defense is? Look at what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Look at what Jesus can do in the life of all who would simply believe in him and confess him as Lord. And Paul stands in this auditorium surrounded by probably 5,000 people and he speaks with boldness, he speaks with conviction, he speaks with courage, he speaks with certainty and assurance, he speaks with clarity, he speaks with liberty, he speaks with authority, yet speaking with humility. And notice, Paul isn't the hero of his defense. Paul doesn't point to himself and to his greatness What does he do? Christ is the hero. Look to Christ. Look at Christ and what he has done. Look at what Christ gives. Paul is a faithful gospel witness. And all Christians are called to be a faithful gospel witness. If you are in Christ, you are a faithful witness and you are called to live it out. And so we've been thinking about what does it mean to be a faithful gospel witness. We have already seen three ideas of what this means. This morning we will examine the final two. You can follow along in your bulletin. That's helpful to you this morning. You'll find those first three points there. Our hope as a faithful gospel witness depends upon the reality of the resurrection. Our transformation into a gospel witness depends upon encountering the risen Lord. Our purpose as a faithful gospel witness depends upon the power of the gospel. And these last two points will flow from our text starting at verse 19 through the end this morning. But we begin here with with number four. Our preaching as a faithful gospel witness depends upon our devotion to God's word. Our preaching as a faithful gospel witness depends upon our devotion to God's word. To God's word. Paul has just relayed to King Agrippa the encounter he had with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was on that road, if you remember, going to Damascus to persecute Christians. But the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road, stopped him dead in his tracks, and this divine, glorious light shone around him, brighter than the noonday sun, and Jesus spoke to him, spoke to Paul, or as he was known then, Saul, and cut him to the heart. Saul, you're persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. You're persecuting the Lord of glory. You're opposing not merely the name of Jesus, you're opposing the great I am. You're opposing God himself. But Jesus goes on 
to tell Paul and tell Saul that he has a purpose for him. Jesus had appointed him for a particular purpose. In fact, if you would look at Galatians 1.15, this is what Paul says about this. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's what happened to him. The son of the living God was revealed to him at that very moment there on that road to Damascus. Jesus set him apart and commissioned him to go in the power of the gospel so that the eyes of many people would be opened to the, to the truth. Amazing that Paul says, he set me apart from my mother's womb. Even there, even there, the Lord had a purpose for his servant. Let's affirm what Paul says here, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Christ has appeared before me. How could I disobey the Lord? How could I go against what he has specifically told me to do? How could I forsake what he had set me apart to do even while I was still in my mother's womb? Isn't this all Christians? I don't want to disobey Christ. How can I disobey the one who gave himself, gave his life for me? How can I disobey the one who reached out and got a hold of me, a wretched sinner that I am, and saved me. Christ is the motivation for our obedience. So, Paul does exactly what Christ had called him to do. He started in Damascus. But if you remember, he has to flee Damascus because his life was in danger. They let him down in a basket through a window in the wall of the city. He goes to Jerusalem preaches there, but again, he has to flee from Jerusalem for his life. So he goes to the surrounding regions of Jerusalem and Judea, and then he goes to the Gentiles. He went to those whom the Jews considered unclean dogs, nothing. He went to the Gentiles who were pagans, who were considered far off from God. But notice what it was that he declared everywhere he went. Repent, and turn to God. Paul's message was the same message as Jesus, wasn't it? Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul's message is the same as Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where does Jesus start? Where does Peter start? And where does Paul start? Repent. Where do you start? Where do we start? Do we start by calling people to repentance? No, that's, that's too... That's too difficult. It's too hard. It doesn't make people feel good. It doesn't make people happy. It makes people uncomfortable. It makes people squirm. We think that leading with repentance in our faithful gospel witness will kill our gospel witness, but so often it's right where God would want us to start with this message. Repent. What is needed for repentance? People are first given the truth, need to be given the truth about who God is. People need to understand God is holy. He has set, He is set apart, He is completely perfect, He is completely without sin, completely righteous. They need to understand that God has not only created everything that exists out of nothing, but that because He has created everything, He owns everything, and that includes you and me. He did not only create everything, and not only does he own everything, but he also rules over everything. 
He has created us in his image with great value and with great worth so that we would reflect his image in the world and that so the world would be filled with his glory. Glory that is all due to him who is the great, almighty, infinite, all-knowing, holy God. There's just one major problem. Sin. Instead of living for God, instead of living the way he designed us to live, we went our own way, wanting to be our own king, thinking that we knew better than the perfect creator God who designed us and made us and owns us. Thinking to be wise, we became fools and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And oftentimes when we think of repentance, we jump immediately to sin. We jump immediately to the fact that we are sinners, that we have done things that are wrong. But to our world, that won't mean anything if there is not a righteous God who is going to judge you for the way that you have lived your sinful life. Repentance of sin, turning away from sin, and the call for repentance must be given as we begin with who God is because it is only then that people will see just how odious and ugly and disastrous and deadly their sin really is. And when we are calling people to repentance, we're calling them to think again. This is one of the ideas behind repentance. You have to think again. I believe this is what is so difficult for mankind, not just today, but throughout the ages. We don't want to think again. We've made up our minds. We're set in our ways. We don't want to hear anything else. We've been convinced in our own minds, in our own hearts, that the way that we are going, the way that we are living our life is right, and we refuse to think again. But that is our call. Think again about God. Think again about yourself. Think again, you are in the wrong. Think again, you are wrong. You are a sinner, and as a sinner against God and against His ways, you are guilty and deserving of death and eternal separation from God forever. Think again about Christ, about what He has done to save you and rescue you from your sin. Think again about the, the cost Jesus paid on the cross to cleanse and forgive people of their sin. Think again about what true love is and that the Son of God would lay down His life so that people could know abundant and eternal life. And let me tell you, my friends, God so grants repentance to people that they are able to think again. And in thinking again, God enables them to see clearly what it is that they need, a changed and new heart. And would we ever think that one of the ways that we should proclaim repentance is to proclaim the kindness of God. Listen to Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Did you hear that? It is God's kindness that is meant to lead people to repentance. God's kindness in His mercy that He has not given you immediately what you rightly deserve for your sin, judgment, and death. God's kindness in His grace that He has given you what you do not deserve, a way back to Himself and a way to receive eternal life. God's kindness in His love that you see displayed upon the cross of Jesus Christ where God the Son was forsaken by God the Father as He bore our sins in His body on that tree. God was willing to forsake His own Son so that people might be forgiven and live forever. God's kindness is unlike any other kindness that we know in our lives. And God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. To turn your back on your sin, to make you think again and say, I no longer want to live that life under the dominion of sin. I see 
the guilt and the weight of my sin against God, and it needs to be dealt with. God's kindness is meant to lead you to forsake your sin and turn to God. If you are unrepentant, what are you doing? You are spurning the very kindness of God. You remain unwilling to let God's kindness penetrate into your heart and into your life and change you. We see repentance as the turning from sin. And then we see the positive, turning to God. Turning in faith, believing in God. And knowing that those who come to God through the Son will never be cast out. But let us say one more thing about repentance. And it's this. Repentance is hard. It's difficult. Why do I say that? Because of how Paul explains with repentance and turning to God changes the way one's life looks. How do you know if someone has really repented and turned to God in faith? You see it there. They are performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. We cannot and must not be confused about what repentance is. We cannot and must not try to sugarcoat repentance so that it's easier for people to swallow. Repentance is hard. Repentance is not being regretful. Being regretful is easy. Repentance is not feeling remorse. Feeling remorse is easy. Repentance is not apologizing, saying, I'm sorry. I'm, saying I'm sorry is easy. Repentance is not making empty promises. I'll never do that again. I promise, I promise, I promise. That is easy. Repentance is not ignoring your sin or minimizing the destruction that sin causes in your life. Minimizing sin and ignoring sin, that is easy. What is Repentance, repentance is nothing less than a completely changed life. Repentance is a changed heart that leads to a complete change in action. Repentance affects everything in your life down to the daily decisions that you make. Repentance is difficult because repentant lives cannot be hidden. People see the way that you live. They see the deeds the actions that you take in keeping with repentance. They see you leave, live differently because you are so committed and resolved to forsake and kill sin in your own life. Bear fruit in your lives in keeping with repentance. No deeds. No deeds corresponding to repentance. What does that tell us? There's been no true repentance. And if there's been no repentance, there's been no faith. And if there's been no faith, you are still dead in your sin and under the wrath of God. Don't fool yourself. And repentance is something, as a Christian, it's not just a one-time thing that's happened in our life. No, it's ongoing. The evidence is continuing to mount up in our lives. We're continuing to change. We don't say, well, yeah, I repented way back then, and I don't need to do that anymore because that was 20 years ago. Repentance is to continue doing the deeds of repentance. Continue to show that you are forsaking your sin. Think again. Turn from your sin, turn to God, and perform the deeds in keeping with the inward heart change that has taken place. This is the message that Paul was proclaiming, and the Jews hated him for it. <laughs> they seized him in the temple. They tried to kill him. Why did they so hate this message? One very obvious reason is that he was proclaiming this message to everyone. He was proclaiming the same gospel to the Jews as he was proclaiming to the Gentiles.
And Paul was saying, listen, the Gentile pagan people, they do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. The Gentiles, they don't need to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. They simply need to repent and believe. And it was the exactly same message for the Jews. Are we as bad as the Gentiles? Are we as far from God as the Gentiles? Do we need to do the same things the Gentiles do? Aren't we clean before God while they are unclean? Don't we have the temple where we worship while these pagans worship their false gods? The Jews could not, under, could not stand for this treason, this blasphemy, this defiling message, so they wanted to kill Paul. But God helped Paul, strengthened Paul, just as God strengthens all of his faithful gospel witnesses. Don't we all need help that comes from God? We can never move away from that help. We can never get over that need that we feel as a gospel witness. God, help us that we would be faithful among people, whether great or small whether few or many, to stay devoted to the Word of God. And that's precisely what Paul was devoted to. He says, I'm just preaching what the whole Old Testament says. The prophets, Moses, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. And Paul says, the Bible said this would happen. The Bible's been preaching and proclaiming the same message. I'm not saying anything different than what they said would come to pass. Everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to this, and now it's been fulfilled, and now it has come in Jesus Christ. It's said that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. Look at Isaiah 53. Look at Psalm 22. Look at Psalm 89, even Psalm 118 that we read. This is nothing new, but this is what so many Jews stumbled upon. They had no category for a suffering Messiah, a suffering rescuer king. But even Jesus taught this in Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The Christ must suffer. Jesus says it is a divine necessity. It's what the Old Testament taught. It's what Jesus taught. And Jesus and Paul teach the same thing because Scripture can never be broken. God always does and accomplishes exactly what He said He would do, what He promised to do. What Scripture says, God says, and Scripture cannot be broken because God Himself cannot lie. But Paul goes on to say that this Christ, He is to be the first to rise from the dead, which we know also from Colossians 1.18 when it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. This is that Jesus is the first to rise again from the dead, never to die again. And it is His resurrection that ensures the resurrection of those who believe in Him. It is His resurrection that has broken the seemingly unbreakable pattern of death that is anticipated in the Old Testament. If you want a picture of this, read Genesis. Being a Genesis, in there it goes through what we might consider boring genealogies. So-and-so begot so-and-so and he died. So-and-so begot so-and-so and he died. So-and-so begot so-and-so and he died. And you read through that and every time it ends and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And it leaves you as the reader feeling, when is the cycle of death going to be broken? And it has been broken. <laughs> it's been broken in our Savior Jesus Christ. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Why do you think Enoch was taken up? Because right there, what God is saying, look, the pattern of death can be broken. There is hope. And the hope culminates in a Savior who rises again from the dead and never dies again. And that's what people need because they are in exile. They are sitting in darkness. And that's what he goes on to say here, isn't it? He would proclaim light. Jesus Christ would proclaim light 
both to our people and to the Gentiles. They are in darkness because they are in exile. They are not home. They are held captive. They are bound to sit in darkness. But light has come. That's why Jesus is so closely associated with light. He is called the true light. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. I am the Lord God who brings people out of their darkness, out of their exile, and brings them back home to the place where they will dwell with God. This is the light that's proclaimed both to Jews and to Gentiles. Jesus is leading everyone out of exile, everyone out of darkness, and it's here that we see the offspring of Abraham, the one offspring of Abraham, bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. Paul says, listen, I'm devoted to preaching the word of God. This is the word of God. This is what God has said he would do and he has done it. And it's all centered around Christ. He is everything in scripture. I'm saying exactly what God's word says and it's in Jesus Christ that the hope of mankind resides. It's not a new story. Paul says it's the old, old story, the story that God has been telling from the very beginning. We are devoted to God's word because God's word never fails. It never returns void. It always accomplishes precisely what he intends it to accomplish. God's word changes lives. It could change your life. And it does so because it proclaims Christ. Finally, number five. Our persistence as faithful gospel witnesses depends upon God's ability to save. Our persistence as faithful gospel witnesses depends upon Christ or depends upon God's ability to save. Paul's been giving his defense, and now there's this interruption, isn't there, that takes place? <laughs> Roman governor Festus, he has to stop Paul and make his own position known in the midst of Paul's gospel proclamation. And what is it, with all of Paul's talking, what is it that Festus comes to believe? Paul, you're out of your mind, you're learning has driven you completely insane. You are mad, Paul, absolutely and undeniably mad. You hear the echo of the world's accusations against Christians come out of the mouth of Festus? Do you hear the scoffer and the skeptic? You are insane, Christian. You believe insane things. You are out of your mind. Get your act together. Don't be seen as a looney tune walking around out there. The scoffers and the skeptics will use the same line of reasoning against us. Christianity is madness. It's completely irrational. But how does Paul respond? No. These are true and rational words. I'm not out of my mind. Ask King Agrippa. He knows that these things have not been done in a corner these things have not escaped his notice. He knows what I'm saying is true and verifiable. You can test it and see that it is completely rational. Our gospel is true and it is rational. Do not believe anyone who would tell you otherwise. You don't have to check your mind at the door to be a Christian. It's completely rational. Follow the reasoning. Follow the logic. Follow the truth. That is something the world would like to deny, but it is undeniable. And Paul sees that perhaps Festus, the scoffer, has not been persuaded, but he presses home the point to Agrippa, doesn't he? Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Agrippa, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what the Old Testament says? Any Jew would say yes. Paul says, I know that you believe. He knows that Agrippa holds to the truthfulness of the Old Testament. If you believe what the prophets said, then you cannot ignore how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Seems to, how are you get out of this one, Agrippa? What are you going to say now? Paul, 
in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul, with one, one little speech, in such a short time, you are going to persuade me of being a follower of Christ? Paul, with so little effort, you think that you can make me a little Christ? Agrippa knows what Paul is doing. Paul wants Agrippa to become a Christian. Amazing. Amazing that, that Agrippa sees this is Paul's desire. Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You better believe I would. What would you be doing in that situation? How can I get out of this? I'm in chains. I'm a prisoner. How can I get out? Not Paul. Are you a Christian? You need Christ. You need to be saved. Your eternal destiny is more important than the fact that I'm standing here on trial before you right now. Agrippa, do you believe? Would you persuade me, Paul? Paul wants Agrippa to be born again. Paul says he doesn't care whether it's a short time or a long time. He doesn't care whether it's easy or difficult. His desire is that those who hear him that day, all of those 5,000 people who are listening to his faithful gospel witness, will become like him except for his change. chains. Shouldn't this be our desire? Whether short or long, hard or difficult, it's our desire that many people become born again, many people become Christians. Would you persuade me to become a Christian? Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what I want to do, and I will be persistent in that. I will not give up on that because I know that it depends on God's ability to save. I would to God, I would pray to God that not only you, Agrippa, but all who hear this day would become Christians. We are persistent in our faithful gospel witness because we believe it all depends upon God to save anyone. It all depends upon God's work in people's hearts and lives and minds. God is able to save from the uttermost those who are lost and dead in sin. That is why we persist. Not because we believe it is our arguments or our reasoning or our persuasive skills that will save anyone. No, it is God who grabs hold of people's hearts and brings them to salvation. And so we persist while praying, God, please save them. Save the small. Save the great. Save in a short time or a long time. Save whether it, we consider it easy or difficult. God, save because only you are able to save anyone. What a picture of Paul standing before these 5,000 people saying, I wish everyone here listening today was a Christian. I wish that you were all saved. I wish that you were all like I am except for these chains. Paul stood before them as someone who had been arrested, someone who was in custody of the state. Someone who was bound. Paul was bound, but God was not bound. Paul was bound, but God's word was not bound. Paul was bound, but the gospel was not bound. No, Paul unleashed the gospel on those who were there that day. Be a faithful witness and then get out of the way and let the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ shine forth. Unleash his glory and his grace on everyone and let God do the work in their hearts to save them from the wrath of God and from the lake of fire. Wait with expectant hearts and rejoice when you see people come to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And let us not dare bind ourselves. Let us not dare hold ourselves back. Let us not dare restrain ourselves when it comes to being a faithful gospel witness, but let us persist in it, preaching the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ until our last and dying breath. Father, would you save many people?
And would we be persistent in proclaiming the gospel message? Because it is our desire that many people come to know you. It's our desire that many people repent and turn to God. May your word and your gospel be unleashed upon many around us. And may you use us as those who desire to be faithful to you. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who for the first time sees you are the holy God, you are the holy judge, you will hold people accountable for the lives that they have lived. You cannot stand or tolerate sin. You cannot ta- stand or tolerate anyone who is broken your law. And they see, that's me, I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. I've gone, ag- gone against His ways. Flood their mind and their heart with the good news of Jesus Christ. that He forgives. He saves. He heals those who put their trust in Him. And today they would say, I'm trusting in Jesus fully to forgive me of my sin. I'm repenting of that odious, ugly sin in light of a holy God. And I'm turning to a loving, righteous Savior who gives life, abundant life, eternal life. And God, we pray that in all of this, you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name.